December in Wuhan City, China. As a city of 11 million people, Wuhan is a commercial, manufacturing and transportation hub sitting at the confluence of two of Asia's longest rivers, the Yangtze and the Han. As mercury in thermometers falls, local hospitals record a rise in cases of pneumonia, which itself is not unusual. All over the world, seasonal flu often leads to lung infections. But this is different. Flu-related pneumonia is usually bacterial and responds to antibiotics. This doesn't. In the first week of January, China reports 44 cases of pneumonia of unknown origin to the World Health Organization. The first thought by many doctors treating patients in Wuhan is that SARS is back. Severe acute respiratory syndrome swept across the country and 25 others in 2003. Its cause was a type of coronavirus that had spread from animals to people originating in Guangdong in southern China. Scientists begin investigating samples from these new patients. Just one week into 2020, they identify the cause. It is a coronavirus, but it's not SARS. It's a new virus. A virus that's never been seen before. By the 12th of January, and before any cases of the virus have been reported overseas, China publishes the unique genetic viral code that tells the world exactly what the structure of this virus is. And scientists in South Korea start doing something remarkable. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm John Young. In this episode, we're investigating the technology that's been used to slow the spread of COVID-19. As we created this podcast, some countries were still at the very start of their coronavirus infection curve, but others were already believed to be past the peak of new infections, and according to the World Health Organization, they have some important lessons to share. There is a moment at which you have to step forward and go after the virus. In order to do that, uh, and we've seen examples in, in, in places like Singapore and, and Korea where uh, governments haven't had to shut everything down. They've been able to make tactical decisions regarding schools, tactical decisions regarding movements, and been able to, to move forward without uh, some of the draconian measures. This is Dr Michael Ryan, Executive Director of the World Health Organization Health Emergencies Programme. The WHO gives daily briefings on the coronavirus pandemic and has urged world economies to look to the efforts of South Korea and Singapore. But they've only been able to do that because they've had another weapon. And the other weapon they've had is highly aggressive case finding, contact tracing, community surveillance, isolation of cases, quarantining of contacts, testing of contacts if they get sick. They've put together a comprehensive public health toolkit which they're able to match with their more society-wide measures like movement restrictions. And we're working extremely hard. Our strategic and technical advisory group for infectious hazards is working with us right now, looking at those uh, strategies to, to move forward from where we are now. So what was so different about the way that South Korea tackled this new coronavirus? It actually began back in 2015 when South Korea was hit by Middle East respiratory syndrome and recorded the largest number of cases outside of the Middle East. The government was determined to learn from the outbreak where 186 people contracted the virus and 38 died. Fast forward to January 2020 and South Korea acted fast with symptom screening at the airports for anyone who was travelling from Wuhan in China. At this point, coronavirus hadn't even been identified. 
but the high number of pneumonia patients reported to the WHO caused South Korea to take immediate action and it began checking incoming travellers for symptoms such as high temperatures. Days later, China identified the cause of the pneumonia as a new kind of coronavirus, which has now become known as COVID-19. On the 12th of January, it published unique information about its structure, the virus's genetic code. Once again, South Korea acted fast. Biotech CEO Chen Yong-yun directed microbiologists at his molecular diagnostics company C-Gene to develop a test to detect the virus. It took them just one week. And other local biotech firms, Solgent, Cogene, they quickly did the same. Before there was even a single suspected case of COVID-19 reported in the country, South Korea was developing its test kits. And on the 20th of January, when China still only had 282 reported cases of COVID-19, the event that South Korea had been carefully planning for happened. A woman in her 30s arrived at Incheon International Airport from Wuhan in China, running a temperature, which turned out to be a symptom of COVID-19. The virus had arrived in South Korea. The patient was immediately quarantined in a designated isolation hospital and every person that the passenger had come into contact with was traced. There were 44, either airport staff or fellow passengers. These people were then monitored for the next 14 days, with the local health services ready to isolate and test should any symptoms appear. A day later and a second case arrived, also from Wuhan, but this time it was detected at Gimpo Airport using their thermal scanners. Once again, South Korea acted quickly, identifying 69 contacts who it then monitored for the next 14 days. Two weeks after the viral code was first published by China, South Korea had tested 116 people and found four to be positive. They were immediately isolated in one of the 29 hospitals that were ready to receive COVID-19 patients. Contacts of these people were tracked and notified. The places that these positive cases had visited were environmentally sterilised and anyone symptomatic was tested. By the end of January, the biomolecular scientists had the test kits ready and they were able to test up to 100,000 people per week. KCDC sent these tests to 18 hospitals around the country, with more being sent to private clinics in early February. But the aggressive response didn't stop at detection. The government carefully tracked every single case. Anyone testing positive would be immediately quarantined. Their prior movements were carefully traced. People that they made contact with were identified. And these people were asked to self-isolate for a 14-day monitoring period. As the number of cases grew, so did the data on who was affected, where they'd been and where they were quarantined. The government pledged to be transparent and immediately began posting data on the number of people infected, where they were located and their travel history, including sending text messages to people in the areas of high incidence. The Ministry of Interior and Safety then developed the Self-Quarantine Safety Protection app, which enabled people in quarantine to be in contact with their caseworkers, as well as tracking their location with GPS to make sure that they remained in isolation. This empowered people to take evasive action and by mid-February developers were using this government data to create mobile apps. Corona 100M, for example, alerted anyone who came within 100 metres of an infected person. It was downloaded 1 million times in the first 10 days of its launch on the 11th of February. Other apps, such as Corona Map and Corona Rita, swiftly followed with user-friendly interfaces, giving yet more ways for people to avoid contagion. 
By the end of that month, 85,693 people throughout South Korea had been tested via the network of local hospitals and clinics. But despite these aggressive and effective measures, the numbers kept on rising. On the 29th of February, 909 people tested positive for COVID-19. It was the most in a single day and brought cases to 2,931. Fatality rates remained low. At this point, only 16 people had died from the virus. A rate of just 0.5%. South Korea's aggressive testing, contact tracing, isolation and avoidance measures certainly helped reduce the spread of the virus, but it couldn't be stopped. And as many other countries were about to discover, it was going to get much, much worse. By the end of March, over 410,000 people had been tested in South Korea and just under 9,800 were positive. 162 people had died, a fatality rate of 1.7%. The 29th of February became a turning point, and by the end of March, this peak of 909 new infections had fallen to around 100 new cases per day. South Korea, like China, was past the initial infection peak. Sadly, this is not yet true for most of the rest of the world, where the number of cases of COVID-19 has also exploded. The WHO has urged governments to test, test, test. Some, like Germany, did immediately. Others, like the UK and the US, didn't. Although testing is certainly increasing. In the UK, only people with symptoms severe enough to be hospitalised are tested for COVID-19, meaning that only the most serious cases are confirmed. Fatality rates are therefore much higher than countries like Germany, who test everyone with symptoms. Of course, there are other indicators that affect this, including the quality of healthcare, availability of essential equipment and the age of the people infected. At the end of March in the UK, just over 25,000 people had tested positive for coronavirus and just under 1,800 had died. This is a fatality rate of more than 7% and with so many people in the country, potentially viral carriers, with mild symptoms and no way of testing them, the government was left with only one option to stop the spread. Total lockdown. So would an app that enabled us to track people affected, make sure they were observing strict quarantine rules and allow people to avoid anyone with the virus have helped? Well, infectious disease specialists and bioethics experts at Oxford University say that it would. In a paper on quantifying the dynamics of COVID-19 transmission, they find that a mobile app for instant contact tracing that uses a simple algorithm and geolocation data from a phone to automatically alert people that have been in contact with someone who tests positive could dramatically reduce onward transmission from contacts. One of the main reasons for this is that a large proportion of viral spread happens before people become symptomatic. Acting early can save more lives. But for the UK, there's two key problems with this. First, we'd have had to have tested people much earlier and more extensively. Something that even two months since the first case was detected, and despite overwhelming evidence from global experts that this is vital, we're still not doing in the UK. Secondly, there's the not insignificant issue of data protection. The UK leads the world when it comes to privacy law. Ben Travers is head of intellectual property and IT at law firm Stephen Scone. So the barriers will be higher here for developers than they are in other territories, but also the protections will be greater for citizens. 
But here we're talking about health data where stricter rules apply. Developers who have apps that track health data need consent from their users. That consent needs to be robust, transparent, and the developer needs to ensure that they stick to the confines of that consent when they use the data. And in addition to the consent for processing, the developer is going to need to find a vital reason under Article 9 of the General Data Protection Regulations, GDPR, to process the data. And this could require a more advanced consent mechanism than you might traditionally see. A tricky part of all of this will be understanding the data flows behind the app, including any third parties who will provide infrastructure and have access to data. Understanding these data flows and communicating to the end user may not be easy. It may also be possible for organisations to process the data further, but only if they can show vital interests, for example, to save lives. But this is very narrowly construed, i.e. will the data subject die if you do not do this? They may also be able to use the data in other circumstances if that information is already in the public domain. But again, that's going to be very limited. At a government level, the DPA 2018... Data Protection Act of 2018 so that's different to the GDPR and it covers the UK only, allows the government to process data in respect of healthcare provision. For public health purposes. Schedule 1, Part 1, Subsection 3, allows processing where it's necessary for the public interest in public health and it's carried out by a health professional or a person or organisation with a duty to do so. According to Ben, despite all of these restrictions, the government does have the power to use data from phones in this pandemic in certain circumstances. He says that there's a clear trust issue and bigger social ethics piece here, and the government will only deal with developers who are absolutely on top of their compliance. And although the law has been drafted to envisage this sort of situation, the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, is likely to review this in the future, and we don't yet know what that looks like. COVID Symptom Tracker app is the first opt-in health monitoring app in the UK to be launched to track COVID-19. Since the team shared it on the 24th of March, 1.8 million people have reported their symptoms in just one week. We spoke to the developer that created it. In normal times, we would do things very differently, but these were not normal times. This is Julianne Levine Ducadet, Vice President of Engineering at Zoe. Zori is an healthcare startup. We work in the uh, nutrition field and basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to predict how people will respond to food. So basically we spent the last two years doing a lot of research um, about that stuff and especially run medical study to find out uh, when people eat certain things, uh, what would be their blood response in terms of blood sugar, blood fat and, and that kind of things. So how did a healthcare startup end up creating the UK's first coronavirus app? Well, it all began with twins. Identical twins. So on, on the 19th of March, basically, we started having conversation with people from uh, King's College London. So uh, one of our co-founder, Tim Spector, is actually the director of something called Twins UK. Which is the UK's largest adult twin registry, and it's the most clinically detailed in the world. It was initially set up by Tim, who's a professor of genetic epidemiology in 1992, to investigate the incidence of osteoporosis and other rheumatological diseases in identical twins. But this has expanded to cover a range of complex diseases and conditions, and there's now over 15,000 identical and non-identical twins on the database. So... 
Obviously with COVID-19, everybody's concerned and they thought that they could do something with the twins and find some correlation that uh, nobody else in the world could. So Tim got back to, uh, to us and say, well, you know, could you do this, this thing for us? You know, could you build an app basically uh, to get twins to report on symptoms? And basically we think ended up uh, deciding that, yeah, we should give it a try, see if we can uh, help Twins UK uh, you know, collect the data they need for that research. There was no time to waste. So, I mean, in, in normal times, we would do things very differently and we would, yeah, I would have taken us like maybe uh, two weeks or something like that, I, I don't know. But these were not normal times. So it was really, let's build something as quickly as possible because, you know, COVID-19 is, is now. So it's not in, in two weeks, it's not in two months. So, you know, can we ship something as quickly as possible? So, um, you know, I, I wrote some of that code, even though I'm not a mobile engineer, for example. You know, we just, just you know, whoever wanted to contribute, we were like, yes, uh, do come and join and help. Julian quickly got together anyone in the company with expertise that could help and held a hackathon. Two working on the mobile app, two working on the, on the back end, one UX designer um, and one person kind of looking at the, uh, all the legal implication. And we just get started and basically we just crack code and everything for the next kind of 36 hours. Hour after hour, the team worked on coding, hosting, talking to medical experts at King's College. Thursday turned into Friday. Sleep became a distant memory. It was intense. And then they cracked it. Like quite late, around midnight, uh, we've got a first version uh, that is good enough to submit to the Google Play Store and, and the Apple Store. Then they had to wait and see if it would be accepted. For good reasons, they're monitoring quite closely everything COVID-19 related and they just don't want any you know, app that would be illegitimate. In our case, thankfully, this is all backed by like proper research done at Twins, like funded by real people and universities. So um, we actually get all the paperwork done during the weekend. And towards Monday, they uh, actually accept uh, our, our submission. It was becoming increasingly clear that tracking symptoms of COVID-19 could generate data that wasn't just interesting for Twins. It could be useful for dealing with the pandemic now and in the future. Within days of launching it, a million people have voluntarily reported their symptoms. And it increased every day. So every day you would go back to the app and say, you know, today I feel well or I don't feel well. If I don't feel well, these are the symptoms I have. Uh, and I went to the hospital uh, or I'm just at home and etc. And before reporting all your symptoms, we ask you quite a lot of questions about your general medical history and conditions. like. You know, do you have cancer? Do you take certain medicine? What is your age? What's your weight? Or height? Um, all those kind of information. So all those informations basically would ask once and then the symptoms, um, if you come back you know, on day by day basis, you can keep reporting them. So as a user, it doesn't give you anything. Like right now, to be clear, this is only, you know, uh, what we call citizen science. So you help the research, but there is no immediate feedback uh, beyond that. There is nothing uh, you can learn right now from the app. However, the scientists working with us are already kind of making, you know, significant headways towards understanding better, um, you know, COVID and the spread and all those kind of things. The scientists are at King's College London and Guy's and St Thomas's Hospitals in London, along with data scientists at Zoe, and they're gaining a better understanding of symptoms of COVID-19, how fast it's spreading and any high-risk areas in the UK. 
This data is then stored on a cloud-based system, which is essential from a capacity perspective. The first reason is that if you were hosting that on your own servers, you would probably be a bit limited in terms of scalability and how many new users you can uh, receive because you know you would need to literally plug hardware or at least you know get uh, a company to do that for you. Uh, whereas the cloud lets you scale without you know all that hassle basically. Plus, the level of security on the cloud is higher because basically you um, you know you, you delegate uh, that to a company such as Google or Amazon that are very very good at managing you know, those servers, as keeping them up to date and making sure there's not like a you know, big security hole. Whereas if you had you know, your own servers, suddenly you would be responsible for all of that and that's make it a lot harder. And data is proving to be crucial in fighting COVID-19. So, I mean, co collecting this data is important because, as I said before, it became clear to doctors and researchers that they actually did not understand that much about COVID-19, uh, even though it started now, you know, a couple of months ago. The first UK case was reported on the 31st of January. So especially the symptoms that people, that we thought were the main symptoms for COVID might actually not be the most important one. So it sounds like a lot more people are asymptomatic. It sounds like, for example, Possibly loss of smell uh, or taste is actually one of the most developed symptoms. But all of that is extremely hard to know because so far what we what I think you know they had access to is mostly the worst case, as in you know the people are really in a bad shape, and and therefore it's it's totally masking what could happen for basically everybody else. Um, so that's why they're really interested in, in, in getting a data set that is you know, a lot bigger about how people are feeling overall to try to find you know, new correlations. So that's, that's why that data matters. But before this could become a data collection tool, it was a software engineering project. When you run a software engineering project, I mean, obviously the first step is understanding what you have to build, right? So that's why we had a quick call with people from, from KCL to understand what, what they wanted to do. So there are three components to a project like that, mostly. There is the mobile app in itself. Uh, and for it, what was uh, extremely important was to use some kind of technology that lets you have one code base, both for Android and iOS, just to half the work. Otherwise, you have to do two totally different projects, which takes uh, more time. Then there's the back-end element. Which is uh, the piece of software that is going to receive all your data, and that piece of software is hosted somewhere in the cloud. Uh, and then you also, you also have you know, some kind of um, database where actually all the data stays for kind of the long term. So that's kind of the absolute minimum you did. So in terms of process, again, we didn't do um, things in, in in the normal way. Basically, we had like a super iterative and, and quite a, kind of quick approach to all of that. So, you know, on the mobile front, we've just started by creating what we call the shell of the application, which is like the bare minimum so that you can actually have uh, an app you know, running on your phone, even if it does nothing. Uh, then the obvious next step was to add registrations and login. So one of us was doing that while another person was starting to you know, build the forms. And in the background, we're um, iterating with the people who work in the back end and say, you know, we need to record those questions. So we need to have some kind of API application programming interface. 
player that we can talk to so that um, that we can send those, those questions back to you and and basically as time was passing over the day we're just keeping adding new questions uh, getting feedback from the uh, the people working on the project on on what else needed to um, evolve as julian and his team worked so did the coronavirus which was replicating faster and faster I had literally no idea what was happening in the world. Like I didn't watch any news. I was nothing. It was like all of us were working 18 hours a day on various improvements. Like it's, it's really, really unique uh, in many ways to go from, you know, an ID on Thursday to, you know, Wednesday next week, you've got more than 1 million people using a piece of software that implements that ID. The app was launched on the 24th of March and a week later there were 1.8 million users. We are proud and I think the what's interesting is not really the number of people that are using the app. I mean sure that's that's a big number and in, in some ways I think that's probably unique in the uh, at least for UK uh, in the sense I don't think there's that many mobile apps that went from literally zero user to 1.8 million in the span of less than a week and we did you know, 1 million basically in 36 hours. Um, so that's quite unique and we can be proud of that. But fundamentally, that's not what matters. What matters is, um, do the researcher have you know, useful data and can make uh, you know, interesting discoveries? So they've not published a lot yet, but um, I understand that there is actually a lot going on and um, a lot that is being discovered. So I think I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to what they do. That this can be done so quickly, leading to important and useful information, is something that the government has started to act on. According to NHSX, which is a digital arm of the NHS and the Department for Health and Social Care, they are now working on a contact tracking app, whilst data privacy campaigners urge them to remain mindful of the ethical implications and the need to protect the human rights of the users in the long term. But in an open letter to government, these same campaigners point to Singapore as a demonstration of how this can be done appropriately with its voluntary Trace Together app. This enables users to retain anonymity, and unlike South Korea, which uses GPS data, Singapore's using Bluetooth to detect whether users are in proximity of a person who's tested positive for COVID-19. Which means that the information is local, phone to phone, and doesn't generate a wealth of location data that could be used in the future. The other important lesson that we've learned the hard way is the need to vastly increase testing. Just weeks ago, companies capable of making these tests in the UK complained that government had ignored their offers of help. Governments now acknowledge that testing's vital. But having left this too late, Chief Medical Advisor Chris Whitty told media that there's now a global shortage of tests. Sadly, there's a long way to go until this pandemic passes, but when it does, it's clear that from biomedical engineering to mobile apps, technology can play a vital role in helping us better manage this type of crisis in the future. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced by Bernadette Ballantyne and John Young. Edited by Ross McPherson. Executive producer is Rory Harris. And special thanks to Julien Levine Ducadet of Zoe and Ben Travers from Stephen Scone. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media.
Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters. We'll be back after Easter with more.